Well, we are a week and a half away from the official start of spring, and one of the ways I know that is because my alarm went off an hour earlier this morning, spring forward. But for me, the biggest indicator of spring is actually the onset of allergies. Many of you who have lived in Corvallis for longer than a year know what I'm talking about. Think back to the first night you couldn't sleep because your eyes were raw, you couldn't stop blowing your nose, and so, so that night you decided, I, I, need, I need medication. Um, the next day you call your mom, you ask for help, she says, go to Costco. Suddenly you're looking at an entire aisle of drugs and you're asking yourself, you know, what, what do I do? There's so many different options. Do I want a name brand? Or do I want one of the 17, you know, Kirkland knockoffs? Do I want a pill? Do I want a nasal spray? Do I want eye drops? Does it really matter if it's drowsy or non-drowsy? Am I, am I too old for the grape-flavored children gummies? How, how do you know that something is trustworthy? How do you know that it will bring proper healing, relief, protection from grass? How do you know that it will bring deliverance from its aggravating symptoms? How do you know that it will do what it says it's going to do? And to ask a more spiritual question, which is why we're here, how do you know that God will do what he says he will do? You know, as people, I think that we were created to learn and make decisions based on experience. The more times something has worked for me in the past, the more I, I am tempted to rely on it in the future. But that's not just individual. It's not just my experience. We learn based on other people's experiences. That's why we read and write reviews, why we ask for recommendations, and it's why we study history. How do we know that God will do what he says he will do? And this is the question that our passage answers this morning. God always acts according to his word. We know that he will do what he says he's going to do because he already has over and over again culminating in salvation through Jesus Christ. So, we can place our faith in him alone. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. You will be helped by having a Bible in front of you. I hope to read the first three chapters and refer to it quite often. 2 Kings, it's in the Old Testament, the first half of the Christian Bible. If you need help, you can look it up on your phone. You can share with somebody next to you. 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to see that God acts according to his word in three parts involving God's prophet, God's preservation, and God's provision. And each one of these stories corresponding to a different chapter shows that the primary way God works is through salvation and judgment. And as we walk through the text, the question I want you to be asking is, how do I respond? How do I respond to the truth that God always acts according to his word? First, we see salvation and judgment through God's prophet. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Okay, we'll, we'll stop right there. We're dropping straight into the middle of a huge historical and theological story 
that encompasses almost 400 years of Israelite history from about 970 BC to 580 BC. And the story starts with the kingdom of Israel flourishing and prospering under its greatest king, Solomon. But because of Solomon's idolatry, because he has pursued other gods, he has forgotten the one true God of Israel, the kingdom splits in two, and the story traces the downward spiral of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Eventually, they're either wiped out or they're hauled off into exile. And the book of 2 Kings starts right in the middle of this downfall and eventual destruction of one dynasty in particular, Ahab's dynasty, the family of Ahab. And this verse provides context for the entire first three chapters of the book. After Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah reigns in his place, and the nation of Moab rebels against Israel. We'll get to Moab later, but for now, let's continue reading. Verse 2, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers saying, telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Ahaziah, king of Israel, falls out the window of his palace. And as he's laying in bed injured, he tells his messengers to go 45 miles away to the Philistine land, the city of Ekron, to ask their variant of the god Baal if he will recover. But God has a different plan. He sends his own messenger to tell Elijah to intercept Ahaziah's messengers with a new pronouncement, you shall surely die. We continue in verse five. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you were sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So the messengers go back to the king. They relay Elijah's message. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you sent to inquire of the God of Ekron? And Ahaziah's response shows just how low his view of God is. He doesn't even blink at the pronouncement of judgment. We can kind of see this conversation playing out in our heads. Who, who told you these things? Well, it was some hairy guy in a leather belt. Wait a minute. That, that's Elijah. I know that guy. Now, I'm not Ahaziah, but I would hope to pay attention to the warning lights that start to flash one at a time. First, he has broken the law of God by seeking to practice foreign divination. Second, is that the depiction of Elijah matches that of a true prophet of the Lord. Almost the same language is given of John the Baptist in Mark 1 to show that he was a prophet like Elijah. 
This isn't just some, some random guy. This is literally God's chosen mouthpiece to pronounce judgment against sin. And if the seatbelt sign, if the, the check engine light aren't enough to get him to stop in his track, his, his engine explodes with the realization that they're talking about the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is the guy who faced off against 450 prophets of Baal. He called down fire from heaven and then he executed all of them. You can read about this account in 1 Kings 18. It's a, it's a huge drama that God uses to make a single point. There's only one God, and his name is Yahweh. That's literally what Elijah means, his name. Yahweh is God. So how, how does Ahaziah respond to these things? Well, he, he gets out of his car, he tries to, to push it. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent, a captain, sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. So we can see Ahaziah attempting to use force to reverse the prophecy of God. Baal didn't work, but maybe if I get God's prophet to pronounce something else, I'll live. He's trying to, to coerce God's word into saying something it has not. And this is in direct contrast to the third captain who approaches Elijah with humility. You can see the repetition of the phrase, man of God, it shows up five times. They address a man of God, come down. He responds, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. While the first two captains call Elijah a man of God, it's the third who actually recognizes him as a man of God, who humbles himself before God's word. Friends, faith is not just mentally agreeing that God exists, that he has spoken. Faith is marked by a humility towards God, towards his word, and ultimately towards his true prophet, Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't make demands of God. We don't bend his will to ours when we don't like what he says. We fall on our knees before the true prophet Jesus and we beg, oh man of God, please let my life be precious in your sight. We don't bring anything to him. We don't come with force. We come before God on his terms, according to his mercy and according to what he has already spoken by his word. And it works. This man's life is saved in direct contrast to the fiery judgment of others. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, 
do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah finally gets Elijah to meet him. He's He's pushing his car over 102 dead bodies just to have Elijah pronounce the exact same word on him. You're, you're going to die. Because you've sent messengers to the God of Ekron, you will surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahaziah dies. He's succeeded by Jehoram, his brother. He he doesn't have kids of his own. God has acted according to his word to bring judgment on idolatry and salvation to those who humble themselves before him. This This is the core of what the gospel says about sin. Sin is not only disobeying God. Sin is not only ethical. But sin is also about how we respond to God's word. It started back in the Garden of Eden and it continues here in 2 Kings. Did God really say? Can God's word really be trusted? Do you respond to his word with opposition? or humility? Do you come with force or pleas for mercy? You may be ethically righteous, much like the rich young ruler. You may be even of of high moral character. But if you look to other things for salvation, if you look for healing, for restoration, for deliverance, for protection in the comforts of this world, then you're guilty of the same sin and idolatry that brought Israel to destruction. How how will you respond? Second, we see salvation and judgment through God's preservation. God preserves his word by anointing a new spokesperson. Elijah is succeeded by Elisha, the man who prophesied under him. And we read starting in in chapter 2, verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So the narrator, with with almost omniscient insight, omniscient knowledge, prepares us for what's going to take place. Elijah's going to be taken away, and what follows is, is three repetitions of the same thing. Elijah says to Elisha, you stay here, I'm going to go to this next city. Elisha says, I'm not leaving. They go to the next city, some prophets come out, they ask Elijah, don't you know that Elijah's gonna be taken away from you? He says, I know, I know, be quiet. It's almost, it's comical in nature. And, and after the same exchange happens twice, they finally reach the Jordan River, which is the, the historic place where Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, crossing on dry ground. We pick up in verse six. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. 
Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw and cried, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now, there's, there's a few things in this narrative that we, we can't say for sure. For example, we, we don't know why Elijah is trying to get rid of Elisha. But we finally see why Elisha has been following Elijah to these three cities. He wants a double portion of his spirit. In other words, he wants to, to be filled with the same power, with the same ability to proclaim God's word and to perform miracles as, as Elijah, the guy who raised the dead, who called fire down from heaven, who, who brought drought on the earth by his prayer. And all he had to do was, was see Elijah taken up from him, and he does. And what we learn here is that, that God is faithful to preserve his word. I love that right away, Elisha takes the mantle, the, the cloak of, of the prophet, and he does the exact same thing Elijah does. He parts the water. It's almost like his crossing answers the question that he asks. Where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? Well, he's, he's here. The same God, but now working through Elisha new prophet. Elijah, the man who confronted Baal, who set God as supreme, whose name literally means Yahweh is God, is replaced by Elisha, son of Shaphat. Elisha, meaning God is salvation, son of Shaphat, meaning son of judgment. God's preservation brings salvation and judgment anew. And what follows is proof that this succession has, has taken place, that Elijah truly is gone, and that God truly does act according to his word that he now speaks through Elijah. The 50 guys who were watching Elijah's ascension take place now see Elisha as having the same spirit as Elijah. And they, they pressure, in the, in the next few verses, I'm not going to read them, they pressure Elisha to the point of embarrassment to allow them to search the mountains and valleys for Elijah. Let's, let's make sure Elijah didn't just get flown up to a mountain like he did last time. The author is making a point here. God does preserve his word. The succession actually has taken place. There are witnesses to prove that Elijah really is gone, and Elisha is now the guy, which, which will become important in the next few chapters. For now, though, the author is content with showing that Elisha is the Lord's anointed prophet, and that like his namesake, he does bring judgment and salvation according to the word of the Lord. 
Look at verse 19. Now, the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. And when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. We conclude the succession narrative with two short stories. Again, we see that God acts according to his word. Thus says the Lord, and it happened according to the word of the Lord. Like Elijah's prophecy against Ahaziah, so Elisha's word also comes to pass. I'm going to explain the second story first, because I know you probably all have questions about it. What, what's going on with Elisha and the two bears? Now, I could explain away a few of the more difficult ideas by saying, you know, the Hebrew word translated small boys is more likely young servants, much like David was when he faced Goliath. I could say, we're not talking about five-year-olds, we're talking about teenagers. I could say, we don't know that this is the work of God because it only says that Elisha cursed them. I could say, verse 24 says they only tore the boys. doesn't say they were killed. We don't, we don't know they had 42 funerals. I could argue for all of that, but I think it diminishes from the weight of judgment for breaking God's law. The, the point is that it is a gruesome depiction of how God responds to sin. They're not just making fun of Elijah's, Elisha's bald spot. You know, it's, it's not just some joke. Remember Elijah, the hairy prophet, the guy who just went up into a whirlwind in the sky? Go up, you bald head. You're, you're nothing like Elijah. You're not a prophet of the Lord. We wish, we wish you went up instead of Elijah. These boys are, are blaspheming the work of God himself, something that's condemned in Deuteronomy 7.10 and Leviticus 24.10-16. And to add to that, even though the words according to the word of, or according to the word that Elijah spoke are not explicitly used, it's clear that God acted in accordance with what Elisha had pronounced on these boys. The prophet is not the one who performs the miracles. God is the one who judges, who brings his own curse. And the first story is a little more simple. Elisha heals the water of Jericho. And with these two stories, we see an explanation of exactly what salvation is. See, in Christian circles, it's almost like a buzzword. We link it to eternal life and heaven. We use language like, I'm saved. But we sometimes forget that there's, there's a dramatic implication with the concept of salvation. What are you saved from? 
What are you delivered from? What are you protected from? Is it sin? I hear that one a lot. We are saved from our sins. That's, that's certainly true to some extent, but sin is, is just the invitation of a much greater danger. Is it hell? That might be closer. Friends, we are saved from the curse of God, the, the pouring out of God's wrath against everything that is evil and unjust. And the story of Jericho illustrates this for us. Not, not the collapse of Jericho, not the walking around the walls and the destruction of the city, but the curse that was promised upon its rebuilding. You can read about this curse in Joshua 6 and 1 Kings 16. In the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. God's word will come to pass. That all of that happened, and it's likely that, that the bad water, the unfruitful land, is, is just a further extension of this curse. These people are saved by the word of God, spoken by Elisha, but they are also saved from the word of God against their sin. They're saved from the curse of God that promises destruction on our disobedience. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. God preserved his word so that a greater succession would take place. Jesus, the word of God incarnate, who became flesh, who dwelt among us. We know that God's word comes to pass because he actually lived. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ delivered us from the curse of God by becoming a curse for us. He died so that we might live. He bore the wrath of God in our place, the eternity of hell, so that we might receive life. God is building an eternal kingdom for his people, free from sin, free from its curse, free from death and hell, free from pain and injustice, and he builds it at the cost of his firstborn, Jesus Christ. The end goal is not a healing of water, it's not fruitfulness of land, it's not even the escape of, of a prophet's curse on disrespectful young boys. The end goal is an eternity with God, full of joy and life, living the way that we were meant to live for his glory and his honor. Salvation from danger means salvation for a blessing. If you're not a Christian, this is why we gather to worship God together. This is why we give our lives away to proclaim truth to people in the world, because you can receive the salvation of God today by turning from your sin and idolatry and putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You can do it right now. Submit to the authority of God. Humble yourself before his word. Repent of all the other places you look to for salvation. And turn to Jesus alone, who has borne the judgment of God in your place. God acts according to his word to judge and to save. And our third point, our third chapter answers the question, what, what distinguishes judgment and salvation? 
How do we receive the salvation that Christ has won for us in the cross? It is through faith that God will act according to his word. Faith that God will bring salvation and judgment through his provision. Follow along in chapter three, verse one. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from him. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. The narrative picks up again from all the way back in chapter one. The king of Moab rebels against the king of Israel, who is now Jehoram, another son of Ahab. We learn now what, what the rebellion actually was. The Moabites were conquered by King David, and sometime between David and Ahab, they were subjected under Israelite rule, and they were forced to pay a large regular tribute, 100,000 lambs, 100,000 uh, wool of 100,000 rams. We've already seen how weak Ahaziah was, so Moab apparently used the death of Ahab as a reason to start this rebellion. The narrative continues, and Jehoram goes south to the king of Judah to invite the help of King Jehoshaphat. You see the response in verse seven, I will go. I am as you are, my people are as your people, my horses as your horses. And they can commit to marching south through Edom under the Dead Sea to attack Moab from behind. Now, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is no stranger to alliances with Israel. In fact, he promises the same thing to King Ahab in 1 Kings 22. Something to, to pay attention to when you're reading Old Testament narrative is what is different when there's repetition. Previously, Jehoshaphat tells Ahab, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Let's, let's make sure that God will act on our behalf according to his word. That conversation is absent here in chapter three. And we see in verse nine, the consequences of this oversight. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So they run out of water as they're marching south. <clears throat> Jehoram comes to the conclusion that God has actually intended for this to be a destruction of their three nations, Israel, Judah, Edom. In verse 11, and Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Oh, we, we forgot to ask the Lord if we should even go to battle with Moab. Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. They finally remember to consult a prophet of the Lord and they meet Elijah, Elisha, who just happens to be in the wilderness of Edom. And Elisha prophesies for them in verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. 
For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Elisha describes three things that are going to come to pass. First, God's going to send water, not by wind, not by rain, but supernaturally. Second, he's going to give the Moabites into their hand. They're, they're going to win the battle. Third, they will destroy Moab's cities and ruin their land. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. There's a, there's a plot twist incoming. I like those. But here the, the author is drawing attention to a single point. God's provision for his people becomes the means of his judgment on others. The water that God provides for the Israelite army actually becomes the means of destruction for Moab. Verse 21. But uh, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them, red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they, rose, uh, but when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. What follows is a, a destruction of Moab in accordance with what God spoke through Elisha. But what does it mean that God's provision becomes the means for his judgment? For the Moabites, they saw the water and they thought that meant victory. They rushed headfirst into their doom. Let's, let's consider this in light of the provision of Christ and his death on the cross. I realize some of you might object to the idea that you rebel against God's law. Like I said before, you might be ethically upstanding. You might be of good moral character. You might have even spent time reading the Bible and think that you keep God's commands. Friends, the primary sin we need to repent of is the sin of unbelief. Faith is what distinguishes between judgment and salvation. John 3.18, we read it earlier, says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's a glorious thing that God has sent salvation for us through Christ, but it also becomes the means for your judgment. There are only two ways to respond. There are only two ways to live. You can either place your faith in the word of God, Christ himself, or you can not. There's no middle ground. And th this right here is this hidden twist in the, in the exciting narrative. Unbelief. Jehoshaphat is condemned for his lack of faith. Jehoram is condemned for his lack of faith. Ultimately, they fail to completely destroy Moab even though it's, it's crippled for, for a long time. 
Look at verse 26. <clears throat> when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew for him, from him and returned to their own land. The end of the story is intended to leave us a little bit bewildered. Huh? Like what, what just happened? One minute they're winning. The next, the king of Moab is burning his son as an offering and Israel runs away. It's like a complete reversal of what we would expect. God ends up judging Israel and preserving Moab. How, how can I stand up here and say that God always acts according to his word? Didn't he say they would win? The ending is much less anticlimactic if we know the whole story. Moab doesn't win. Israel doesn't win. The judgment has already been pronounced on all the nations because of their idolatry. And it might seem like Israel is the hero in, first, in 2 Kings 3, but in a few short chapters, they're gonna be destroyed for doing more evil than all of the other nations. In, first, in 2 Kings 21, we read this of Manasseh, king of Judah. He, that is Manasseh, burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. God intended for his people to enter the promised land, to purge the evil from within, and to live as his ambassadors in the world so that the nations would be blessed. Instead, they became so warped by their own sin that they were worse than those who were before them. So God casts them from his presence. Are, are we so different from them? Sure, our sin looks different, but at its core is a disbelief in the word of God. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to the truth that God will act according to his word, both to judge and to save? Well, we, we have faith that God will do what he says he will do. We repent of our unbelief. We trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Faith is what saves us from the judgment of God. So faith is the starting point for the Christian life. But what does faith look like in the Christian life? What does faith look like for us as a church? Well, if you're here and you are a Christian, what are ways that you need to be trusting in God's word? When you encounter something in his word that, that pushes up against a part of your life, what do you do? Do you oppose his word? Or do you humble yourself before it, knowing that God, God, God's will will happen? And is your faith made visible by the way you respond to God's word? Here are some examples. This is from Isaiah 41.6 and Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Do, do you believe that God has made you a light for the nations? Not just individually, 
but as a church, branch church, do you believe that God has saved us so that we might bring the gospel to the nations? And do you, do you act accordingly? John fifteen seven, do you believe that God really does work through the prayers of his people? This is one I, I personally struggle with. My tendency in hard situations is to, to push against the word of God, to try to handle life on my own rather than humble myself before him in prayer. I, I was convicted of this even this week. I am like Jehoshaphat. I rush into battle without inquiring of the Lord, and I need to repent of that. I need to show my, my dependence on God through prayer. Matthew 6, 33, Philippians 4, 19, Romans 8, 32. Do you believe that God will supply all of your needs if you seek him first? Do you believe that he will sustain you? Not just your physical needs, your spiritual needs, do you make your faith visible by keeping your relationship with God and our gathering as his people above what makes you anxious in life? Do you put your relationship with God over your classes or your career or the pressures of this world? We know that God will provide for us because he has already provided salvation for us. And we can continue to trust his word because he's already been faithful to us, both in his word and in our lives. Friends, God acts according to his word. He judges and he saves according to his word. And ultimately, he does those things through the word become flesh in Jesus Christ. Second Kings 17, 13 says that God sending his prophets is a display of his grace. So let his word to you today be a means for you to repent and turn to him. We display our faith by humbling ourselves before his word. We display our faith by turning to Jesus alone to save us from the judgment of God. And we display our faith by living out what God has already promised to us in his word. Would you pray with me?